This is God's word. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying on him, him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. The word of the Lord. Our gracious God, as we come into this time and into this space, we come from so many different spiritual, emotional, relational places. Our simple prayer is that as we come before you, before your words, that we would experience them as the fully gracious words that they are, and so that we might experience you as the fully gracious God that you are. And we need to hear that whether we're coming with intellectual doubts today and we don't even want, we wonder even why we're here, or whether we come with suffering or joy, thankfulness. Um, or we come kind of bored and anesthetized by the entertainment and the, um, the stuff and the consumerism of our culture, wherever we come from, we're all more of a mess than we care to admit. And your grace says, your grace, grace from the Bible says, we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. Help us to know that, we pray, through your Holy Spirit. Amen. Desperation. I remember feeling desperate. Um, not in a romantic way. That's, that's where you went, just there. I remember feeling desperate uh, when my wife and I, before we got into the phase of having a whole clan to ourselves, we have, um, how many kids do we even have? I lose track. <laughs> we have four children. Thanks, yeah, thank you. Um, we just have a group. As long as, you know, it feels like a group, then, then I figure we're good. Um, so before that happened, we were just on the verge of going into the dangerous terrain of two children, and, and um, we were expecting our second. We had a, our, our oldest was small enough still to fit in the front pack, so we said, now's our chance. We have a friend in London, or in Windsor, and we have a friend in Dublin. Let's do this. And so we coughed up all the expense. It's pricey to go to the UK, by the way, if you're wondering about that. And so we, but we did it. We bit the bullet, and we went. And, um, and then there was this day of desperation, and it kind of built through the morning because we realized as we stood there on the platform for the tube, you know, the London Underground, that um, even if the gates open and it says, this is when the tube begins, that's not necessarily when the trains start coming. And we had a flight to catch. And our, my poor planning 
uh, had us there sitting and waiting for like 45 minutes to an hour for the train that was going to bring us to the airport. And so uh, as each minute slipped by and no train came, and even then once the train came and you're looking at your watch going, there's no way we're going to get to the airport in time, that desperation started to build. We're going to miss our flights. It's going to be our fault. We're going to have to fork out more money just to go from London to Dublin to go visit our other friend. And, um, and it just felt really desperate. And uh, we finally got to the ticket counter. And, of course, this was, a, this was a job for my wife, who's more of the smoother and the charmer. And I find myself to be more the one who adds awkwardness to situations. <laughs> um, she's the one who kind of dispels it and smooths it out and makes people feel great about themselves. Um, and so it was like, okay, Lisa, this is your job. Go, you know, go deal with this. And sure enough... Um, within 10 minutes, the person on the, at the ticket counter had decided to do something that they, it was clear they didn't usually do this because it was clearly our fault. We should just pay for other tickets. They decided to, to basically log us in as family of employees and put us right on the next flight to Dublin with no extra charge. And suddenly that desperation is, ah, what? That is an amazing act of grace, right? Um, but So I call, I call that a story of desperation, but some of you know, as you hear that, you say, that's not desperation. You know, that's sort of a um, low-grade, um, amateur desperation. Because some of you have been in, and maybe even recently, in deeper desperation. You know, there's, we live in a world in which so many things can be thrown at you, and we like to pretend that they're not going to be thrown at us, but you're dealing with loss, you're dealing with loss of a relationship or loss of, um, of life. Maybe it's a loss, people around here, people here, maybe if you're in a community pod here, one of our small groups, people in your community pod don't even know about this loss. It's so personal and real. And you carry it with you. Um, last week, uh, Peter Baruso uh, stood up here and talked about his new kind of phase of spiritual openness that he's had recently where he's sort of opened up to what is God doing in his journey and what was a big part of that but four people he worked with four people he advocated for as a district attorney or not a a defense attorney um, four people he advocated for and stepped into their shoes and and showed solidarity with them four of them died uh, in one year and um, one of them actually told me this um, when I met with them one of them actually called him the night of his suicide. And talk about the, the, the desperation of death kind of invading into our lives. This can happen. And um, just a story, uh, suddenly a headline last night that um, the, the pretty world-famous pastor and author Rick Warren of Purpose Driven Life, um, his son in his 20s committed suicide yesterday. Um, there's a, another pastor and an and ancient writer, a fantasy writer from the 19th century named George MacDonald who influenced the writings of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. He writes this, um, this year-long journal of one prayer a day when he, was, um, when he was an old man. It's called Diary of an Old Soul. Beautiful prayers. They're poetic. They even have like a meter to them. They're metered out. And they're so full of rich, raw, real faith and doubt, and this, listen to his, his poem, his prayer. Yester eve, death came and knocked at my thin door. I from my window looked, the thing I saw, the shape 
uncouth I had not seen before. I was disturbed with fear, in sooth, not awe. Whereof ashamed, I instantly did rouse my will to seek thee, only to fear the more. Alas, I could not find thee in the house. I was like Peter when he began to sink. To thee a new prayer, therefore, I have got, that when death comes in earnest to my door, thou wouldest thyself go when the latch doth clink, and lead him to my room, up to my cot, then hold thy child's hand, hold and leave him not, till death has done with him forevermore. You get a sense that, you know, there's a, a deep desperation when death knocks on your thin door. It's something we don't, we don't like to imagine that that is true. We, we try to avoid the reality that death is going to knock on our thin door in some way, and the loss of this world, the grief of this world is going to knock on our door. And because we try to avoid it, because it's an uncomfortable thing it, and almost a taboo thing, comedians uh, have a fun time with it sometimes. Louis C.K., one of my favorite comics, um, has been known to say when he's got a crowd of about 2,000 people, this will not seem funny, I guarantee you, for me right now, because I'm not Louis C.K., and um, he can pull it off, but he'll say something like, hey, this is about 2,000 people. This is, basically, this is a representative sample of the human population. And everybody kind of laughs. It sounds, sounds like something funny is coming. But then he says, which basically means one of you is going to die before Christmas. See, that's not funny here. <laughs> I knew that was not going to be funny. And my point was not for it to be funny. And then he says something like, you know, everybody's kind of this, this awkward, kind of grumbling laughter. And then he says, yeah, I mean, just statistically speaking, that's all I'm saying is that one of you will ruin Christmas for your whole family. Um, and I bring that up just to say that's how much we try to avoid dealing with it, that it's still so out there that it's the terrain of um, comedians. It's the cutting edge thing to sort of cr- the line to cross over, the desperation that comes with death. As we look at these stories of resurrection this month, we're looking at what do we learn from these other resurrection stories? And as we look at the ones involving Jesus, we're saying, what do we learn about Jesus? Um, What do we learn through what Jesus is doing? And today we learn something about God. We learn what does God have to offer us in a world where death knocks on our thin door, where the desperation of, of deep loss and pain are right around the corner. What does God have to offer to that? You might say, well, where do, we, where do we see that in this story? Well, basically, we're looking at this story of Jesus, and after the resurrection, we look back at all the stories of Jesus this way, and we say, when we're looking at Jesus, he rose from the dead. We're looking at God. We're, seeing, we're learning about God when we learn from Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 says Jesus was the is the image of the invisible God. And that is the post-resurrection view of the Christian church. And so we look at this story, and let's just simply look at two things. What do we learn when we look at Jesus' eyes, and what do we learn when we look at his hands? His eyes. What do, we, what do we learn from what Jesus looks at in the story? And what he looks at is the woman. If you notice that, he looks at her with compassion. I want you to picture this interesting scene. It's almost like from an old Western movie, the way it starts. There's, there's one large crowd, and then there's another large crowd, and they're kind of coming and sizing each other up. 
Did you catch that? You got Jesus' crowd, and his is going to be more of the optimistic. They're going somewhere. They're hopeful. They're following this new spiritual leader. And Jesus, the man, is standing out in front. Then there's the other group. And that group is a group in a very different place. They're mourning. They're carrying a dead body. And out in front is a woman in complete and utter shambles of grief, the desperation of death. And she's got layers to that desperation. When Jesus looks at her with compassion, what is he seeing? He's seeing someone who, of course, just as anyone would be in experiencing this loss, the loss of her only son, she's going through all the normal stages of grief, she's going through all of the trauma and the terrifying nature of this loss, this emotional loss, her heart ripped out from her. That's where she's at. She's in the middle of that. She, she probably sees nothing and feels nothing of what's happening around her because she's, in, she's going through denial and anger and all the other things. But there's, because of the culture, because of what we know, historically speaking, she's going through a couple other layers of the desperation. Because to lose her husband, we've learned from the story, she lost her husband too. She's a widow. And then to lose her only son meant that she had entered into guaranteed financial ruin. That life now for her, economically, was a dead end. And then, so then there, you keep peeling back the onion of this woman's desperation, and the, the next layer, the last layer is this, is that, culturally speaking, everyone's going to assume now that for this level of tragedy to happen to one person means not just, oh, poor her, but what's wrong with her? What did she do? She's deserved this. This is like some kind of curse, and so she, enters, she now is facing in front of her, in the life ahead of her, the byproduct of people believing uh, that something's wrong with her and how they're now going to treat her. So she's got desperation in terms of her grief and sadness, emotional desperation. She has financial desperation and she has social desperation. And so we read, when Jesus looks at her, when he sees that mess, that brokenness, that amount of sadness and desperation, someone everyone else is going to view as unclean, when he sees that, he has an incredible, deep identification with her desperation. And compassion wells up from within him. There's a word. Um, it, just come, it comes out pretty well in English. Uh, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. That's trying to translate a word that is, it's a fun word to say. It's splagnizomai. Uh, I'm not going to make you say it, but I'm, you know, I'm kind of high-level advanced. I can say that word. Um, and, but splagnizomai, basically there's still a medical discipline today called, um, I think it's called splanknology. And it deals with, if you look it up, one, one description of it that I looked up this week said, study of the viscera. I don't know if, if that word makes sense to you. I use it on purpose. It basically means the gut, right? The study of the gut. So if Jesus has compassion welling up from uh, him, it's coming from the gut. And in the Bible, when it deals with our inner viscera, our gut, it's talking about, that's the language they use because they're talking about the truest part about you, the deepest, most honest place in your soul. What does that mean? That means when Jesus sees her brokenness and her desperation, when his eyes lock and when he sees that, when he encounters it, he cannot help. It is an automatic, visceral response to her pain and her brokenness to have compassion and love and want to do something about it. My question for you is, do you believe 
that not just that that's how Jesus, oh, isn't that nice he treated her that way? Do you believe that that's true about you? Do you believe that in that we're seeing something about how God views you? And my guess is you have a paradigm shift to make with this. I run into it so often. One of the best ways to get it, how, what's going on spiritually with someone as they go through some desperate time or a difficulty spiritually is to just ask the question, what do you, when, when God looks at you right now, what do you think he sees? And what is usually the answer that someone like me runs into when we ask that question? What is the answer that I often say to myself when I, when I think about that question? Is, oh, he's probably disappointed. Probably kind of wants to avert his, his glance and not really look at me. Maybe you have this feeling that you've ruined God's week, right? You know, uh, last week there was a video that ruined my week. And it ruined a lot of people's week throughout the country. It's this, um, it's this, this video of, of, um, of a sports injury during the NCAA finals. And um, I, I am advocating not watching it. I'm just telling you right now. If you have not had your week ruined, do not watch it. Do not go and Google it on your phone during the sermon. Don't, don't, don't look at this video. I'm just telling you that it's, um, it's an excruciating kind of... Somebody described it as a gruesome in sports injury. A broken leg, but it was gruesome. And, um, and so I saw a blurry little thing on the phone of it, and I said, that's enough. I don't want to see any closer. I don't want to see it on a bigger screen. And I didn't even get a very good look at it. You know what, um, you know what struck me in that video? Maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't. But what happened was every single person you could see in the video, even the grainy one I saw, every single person who looked at the injury had an immediate visceral reaction in unison. They couldn't avoid it. It was like automatic, instantaneous. Everybody had to turn away in disgust. Even people across the court were falling to the ground, <laughs> 20 feet away, falling to the ground after glancing at this person's leg. The coach standing nearby couldn't even look, had to turn away and, and collect himself before he turned back. Is that how you view God with you? If you do, you have a problem spiritually. I'm just going to say it in extreme terms. I don't usually talk to you that way, right? You have a problem spiritually. I'm just, you know, just going to say it that way, though, because if, if you view God that way, you are getting it so wrong, and you are missing the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So my job in some way is to make this story come alive for you so that you can enter into a new phase of transformation, a new phase of growth so that unselfishness can well up from your heart and your behavior so that you can have compassion for others, so you're not so addicted to what you have and you can give away freely, so that you're not so insecure and you can be brave and bold in who you are in Christ and in God. All of these things you want to transform, drive into your heart, drive into every crack of your life life, the truth that when God looks at you, he cannot help but turn toward you with love. He is not averting his gaze. He doesn't have to turn away and collect himself. It's a visceral reaction. We look, at, we look at Jesus and we learn that God has that view of us. That's what we learn when we look at his eyes. When we look at his hands, we learn something else. What do you learn when you look at Jesus' hands? I don't know if you noticed in the story, but the story says that when he touched the beer or the, the, the platform that they were holding his body on, when he touched it, everybody stopped. Everybody stopped. And uh, that's a, a translation for the Greek, which more literally says everyone freaked out. Um, that's, a tech, uh, that's technical Greek for everyone had a cow, you know. 
Um, because what he didn't just, it wasn't just icky or creepy, you know, oh, that was kind of creepy that he did that, you know, like we view cemeteries and so forth. No, 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 no. There are layers of cultural no-nos that he has just passed right on over and done a dance (laughs) because he touched death. And that meant for Jesus now that he has taken on the uncleanness of the death and it changes him to do that. Basically, it means he's socially and spiritually unacceptable. He has to go through a period of cleansing if he's even going to enter into the worshiping um, community again and go to the temple. You see what's going on here in this story? You see how that's not only just something he does now as he's going to heal or bring back to life this, this son and give the son back to the mom. It is something that foreshadows exactly how he operates for us and for all of humanity spiritually when he goes and touches another piece of wood that is basically his coffin, and his arms get outstretched on the coffin. What is he doing? He's physically taking on the death and the uncleanness that has caused the layers of desperation in this woman's life and in our life. He gets death, she gets life. What do we learn from what Jesus touches and what he does with his hands? We learn that he'll go in and absorb everything that he doesn't want us to have to deal with so that we can have what he has. He takes on death, she gets life. He takes on death on the cross, you get new life. And I know someone will hear that, and if you hear it from a certain kind of place of raw pain and grief and suffering, um, I can just hear this response. You know, I, it's wonderful for this story, it's wonderful that she got her son back, but I didn't get mine back. There was no happy ending for me. And you know what? I think God needs to answer that. <laughs> I can just hear that response, that questioning, saying, you know what? Nice for that woman but I'm still sitting here in the desperation of death and loss. What does God have to say about that? How does God answer to that? And I'm here to give you a very sophisticated theological answer. I don't know. Because um, God doesn't provide it. God doesn't give the answer. And you can pretty much take the best top ten books on the problem of evil and suffering and how there's a good God, but there's also evil. And you can pretty much just throw those in the dumpster once this question hits you personally. Because they're not going to lessen the trauma that you feel. Nice to think about, nice as a framework to have, and to bring hope when you're not in that situation. But, you know, if that's where you are, you're in the raw trauma and real grief. And about the only thing, you know, I don't have the answers to give you, but the only thing about that I, that I can give you is to say that, you know, God hasn't answered it. That's why I'm not going to try to. But God has entered it. And if you know, if you know that God decided, even though he could avoid the desperation of death, he could easily have avoided it. And he saw fit, because we are in it, he saw fit to enter into the heart of it, alongside of us, before us, to bring us home. If you see that that's the route through which he came so that you might know him, then when you are in it, 
then you can have hope. In a sense, if you know that God can look into uh, you know, losing his son, losing his child, if he can look into the loss and the suffering and the, and the uncleanliness and the desperation of death, and if he can go in it and see through it, then when you go into it, you will be, if you believe that he has done that, you will know you won't have all the answers. It's still going to be desperate, feel desperate and there's lots of tears, but you will know that you might be able to see through it as well because of him. And just to close, uh, um, I want to share maybe what that looks like to see through it, one glimpse of it. Because there's a, a theologian and a scholar who I often read because he's got this thick, really helpful commentary on the Gospel of Luke, which we read from today. Um, his name is Ben Witherington. Um, so he's written about the resurrection. He's written about this story that we read from today. But last year in January, he lost his daughter. She's 32, 32 years old. She was just alive one day and dead the next, an embolism. And he, and he writes about it. And it's very raw and real. He says, My hope is in nothing less than a dramatic reversal of death in the flesh. My hope is not even just in the risen one, though that is true enough, but in his promise to raise from the dead those who are in Christ. Nothing less than this is my hope. So as I grieve for Christie, I do so in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. I cannot wait to see her new resurrection form. If she is any more bright and beautiful than she is in the photo here, I will need strong sunglasses to view her. That's living in a world of the desperation of death with resurrection hope. Let's pray that we might do the same. Our gracious God, help us. Um, especially if we are in the midst of or about to enter into desperation. Or if we feel like our life is always going in and out of desperation, loss, grief, depression. Will you meet us? And will you use your resurrection hope to, um, to fill the hole in our hearts, knowing that you have drawn us home, that you love us from the gut, and our future, both spiritually and bodily, is with you and your resurrected son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.